Hello, my name's Nick Sawyer, and welcome to the Swap Podcast, where we exchange news and views on the latest trends in derivatives and finance. We're staying with benchmarks once again in this episode, but this time we're taking a look at the alternative reference rates that will replace LIBOR and other interbank offered rates. In the previous two episodes, we talked a bit about SOFA and SONIA, the risk-free rates, or RFRs, that have been identified by industry working groups as alternatives to US dollar LIBOR and sterling LIBOR, respectively. In this episode, we'll explore the alternative rates in a bit more detail. We'll look at the extent to which firms are using them and what needs to happen to increase liquidity. Joining me again is Scott O'Malia, the CEO. Hey, Scott. Hello, Nick. Scott, ISDA recently started publishing a monthly indicator in association with Claris, which looks at the proportion of trading activity in cleared OTC and exchange-traded derivatives that reference risk-free rates. That indicator reached 9.5% in September compared to 6.4% the prior month. So that shows we're moving in the right direction. But it also shows there's a long way to go, right? That's absolutely right. There has been significant progress, and we have to remember that some of these alternatives, like SOFR, didn't even exist a couple of years ago. But LIBOR continues to dominate trading activity. And with just 14 months until LIBOR could cease to exist, it's important that we do more and see more in terms of trading alternative risk-free rates. Well, we've got the right guests with us here today to give us a perspective on trading activity. Jack Hattam, Managing Director in Global Fixed Income at BlackRock, and Subhadra Rajapa, Head of US Rate Strategy at Societe Generale. Yes, absolutely. We'll be able to get a trading perspective on all of this and understand what liquidity is really like in these alternative reference rates. More importantly, we'll get a perspective on how trading activity can be improved. Great. Well, let's get started. Let's bring on our guests. Terrific. Jack Subhadra, welcome to The Swap, and thank you very much for joining us. Looking at the various risk-free rates that have been selected to replace the IBORs around the world, what levels of liquidity and types of trades are you seeing? Subhadra, let's start with you. From our perch, mostly what we're seeing is fixed versus floating SOFR swaps, activity from hedgers, as well as some asset swapping. We've seen issuers that issue FRNs linked to, to SOFR swap it back to fixed, as well as some issuers that have liabilities linked to, to LIBOR. They're actually swapping back their SOFR exposure to LIBOR. So we've seen a variety of swaps. I think that the activity is definitely starting to, to pick up, especially in the longer tenors where we've not seen nearly as much activity. We're starting to see more in tenure maturities, for instance. Asset liability managers, pensions and insurance companies are also starting to test the waters, but they're not really fully there yet. And I would say that even though we're seeing a pickup in volumes in SOFR-based swaps, a majority of the, of the transactions are still in LIBOR, and that transition has to gradually happen over the upcoming year. Jack, what are you seeing in the market? Yeah, thanks, Scott. What we're seeing in the market, I, I think we're, we're seeing some growth in trading of product and the products are really it's it's futures and swaps we're paying very close attention to volumes on the cash side as Subhatra said you know we're, we're paying close attention to some of that migration that's happening whether it's in floating rate notes or in you know the short dated markets we're, we're paying attention to issuance changes in you know the, the corporate and securitized markets as well and i think alongside that there's going to be this commensurate growth in the associated derivatives so it's futures 
and swaps by jurisdiction. I, I mean, the UK is further advanced where we're seeing more volumes and liquidity in Sonia, but there's definitely growth in Sofer products. And I think the next thing that we're going to wait for is some more liquidity and trades happening inside the option space. Now, according to the latest figures from the ISDA Claris RFR adoption indicator, this is an indicator that we've collaborated with Claris FT on. We've seen 9.5% of global trading activity in cleared OTC and exchange traded derivatives referenced to the risk-free rates in September. That's a September number. And it's up slightly from the previous month. But there's still a long way to go. What's, What's holding it back? I think the real answer to me is that that number indicates pretty healthy growth. This is a market that is new. And we're paying a lot of attention to the growth of both market structure and developments you know, throughout the entire ecosystem. So as I said, you know, we're paying a lot of attention to growth in the cash markets and issuance patterns. That being said, this is a migration that's going to continue to happen and continue to grow. The clock keeps ticking towards end of 2021. I don't necessarily know if it's that Things are holding people back from trading more, but it's definitely, we're, we're all waiting as a, as a whole ecosystem to kind of migrate together. And that's going to take some time, but the progress is, is there. Do you agree with that, Sabadra? I agree with what Jack's saying. And I'd say from my perch, there are really three key things that I'm focused on. The first thing is liquidity. As an end investor, it's really difficult to justify moving trades into a product that doesn't have the same depth as the LIBOR swap market or LIBOR-based uh, you know, products um, based off the LIBOR indices. So if you're looking at transacting, say, 500K in one you're going to have to do that in 10 clips instead of perhaps one clip in LIBOR. That, to me, is the first big hurdle. The second thing is a lot of the investor base is still focused on a forward-looking uh, term rate with a credit component. And so far, is a, is a backward-looking overnight rate. So that, that's, a, I would say, a mental hurdle for some of the investor types. And the third thing that I'm, I'm focused on is that the broader interest rate environment is also you know, been fairly stable. So there's not nearly as much, I would say, hedging needs from dealers. There's not the same volume of inventory turnover on the dealer side. So the demand from the dealer community to, to use SOFR as well is, is quite diminished. And broadly speaking, the footprint of the larger uh, investor base, like for instance, the, the GSEs, the government-sponsored enterprises like Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac and the home loan banks, I mean, their footprint is also a lot smaller post-crisis than pre-crisis. So we need to see a lot of these different factors start to evolve over the, over the coming uh, months to see broader liquidity in SOFA-based products. Well, I think you've both raised very compelling arguments. But it's kind of a chicken or the egg question here in terms of forming trading liquidity and so forth. Do we need more cash issuance to drive trading liquidity or do we need to kind of remove the training wheels, get people just to take it on and have the IBORs phase out by 2021? Which do you think will be more effective in driving derivative liquidity here in these markets? So I think that you definitely need more cash products. I mean, you have a very robust start in FRNs. A variety of investors are issuing FRNs. But you need to see the origination of loans 
mortgages linked to SOFR, auto loans, which would then sort of restart the asset back industry. On the loan side, both bilateral and syndicate loans need to start using SOFR. And broadly speaking, I think that the liability of financial institutions are still very much linked to LIBOR, and that transition has to happen. Otherwise, you're going to see more and more issuers that are issuing it so far having to swap back to, to LIBOR. So I think that the uh, broadly speaking, the cash markets need to start shifting more towards SOFR, and that would organically start bringing liquidity in, in the derivatives market as well linked to, to SOFR. Jack, do you agree with that? I, I very much agree with, with Subhata's point. I, I think this is really a function of time. From the asset manager perspective, we have LIBOR exposures inside our portfolios. We have LIBOR exposures on the cash side. We have LIBOR exposures on the derivative side. Some of them are outright and some of them are, are connected from because you're, you're hedging asset with its associated derivative hedge. So I think from a portfolio construction standpoint, we're at a point where you have LIBOR exposures that we've spent a whole lot of time making sure we clearly understand the fallbacks that are within them. And if you have a LIBOR exposure that that has a a well-understood fallback, and now that you're past the point where ISDA's released its protocol, so you understand how your derivative hedge is going to operate, then there is a pathway forward for those assets. And then you have this growing side of alternative reference rate product and that's happening on both you know, the cash and the derivative side. What you're left with are the, what the industry refers to as tough legacy, and there's being a lot of time spent on, on that. But it really is going to be a function of time, because as you walk forward, some of your LIBOR exposures are going to mature, and they're not going to be replaced with tough legacy LIBOR exposures. So I, I think the most important thing you could do as market participants right now is make sure that you're preparing systems and data, have a really good understanding, not just about the new products, but how your existing products are going to operate under a LIBOR cessation event. And all of that is going to ease the, the transition. I, I think, you know, Sabatra made the point earlier, this is not a, an environment where you necessarily are incented to flick a switch right now and say, okay, let's shut everything off from LIBOR and move to to a new rate, it's going to be a progression. But I do think you need to, you know, part of of the word progression is progress. And you actually do need to make progress along that continuum. Because if you're sitting on your hands and just waiting for that end date without making the necessary preparations, that's when you run the risk of market disruption event. And that unpreparedness is something that would be a problem for, for the marketplace. So I think ripping the training wheels off is not a good idea here. Sabadra, Jack brought up a good point about kind of bilateral negotiations to get out of your existing contracts. Are you seeing that from customers coming to you yet and asking for that renegotiation to get out of some of these products? I think we're we're far away from being able to meaningfully address issues related to tough legacy. And that's one of the reasons why I, I get the sense that perhaps, you know, LIBOR or synthetic LIBOR of some form will continue to exist after 2021 because these issues are very, very hairy and very complicated across several jurisdictions. So even a a legislative approach or legislative solution might not be a one-size-fits-all because it has to have some level of international consistency and that's hard to achieve. So I think the tough legacy is something that we'll have to sort of look at towards 
or even after 2021. For now, I think the focus is really on the plain vanilla transition of interest rate swaps. Major clearinghouses have recently switched to SOFR and ESTER discounting and price alignment interest for U.S. dollar and euro swaps. In addition, ISDA has recently published a supplement and related protocol to incorporate fallbacks based on risk-free rates in new and legacy derivative trades that reference the key IBORs. How important are these changes and what do you think will bolster trading in risk-free rates? Jack, what are your thoughts on this? Well, these are two important steps that was part of these PACE transition plans that were laid out by these jurisdictions, both the ARC, the Risk-Free Rates Working Group, and, and others. So these two big steps are what we were waiting for in 2020 as part of the transition. I think they will you know, encourage more trading in the product because by design, the switch of PAI discounting introduces basis risk inside the markets. So that will, by introducing that risk into the markets, it will um, naturally create some more trading. I think people need to realize what, what people are doing right now. You're, you're realizing what it is and what it isn't. Having these steps towards transition are important milestones, but they are not necessarily uh, magically creating liquidity. The, um, but they're very important milestones. And the fact that we are now past them, I think will lead to more trading. So I agree that this is a very important first step. I mean, SOFR is now a hedgeable rate. It went from being a concept to something that people actually have to hedge on a daily basis. For instance, dealers, given the fact that they have discounting exposure linked to SOFR, they're going to have to transact in this rate on a daily basis going forward. So that, I think, is going to shift the liquidity from OIS um, swaps or, or uh, hedging linked to OIS uh, linked to effective Fed funds to SOFR-based you know, swaps, because that's what dealers are going to have to need to do to hedge their, their discounting exposure. You know, some jurisdictions have opted for a multi-rate approach with local IBORs continuing to exist. What impact does this have on building liquidity and risk-free rates? And how do you see the cross-currency swap being traded in this environment? I think the cross-currency basis swap trading itself is very much in its infancy. I mean, as we know, the ARC published information for dealers and inter-dealer trading in, in cross-currency basis swaps, in cross-currency swaps. And I think that there have been some test trades on the back of that. But this, again, is sort of a second level of, of trading. We're not seeing any activity there as of now. But broadly speaking, the multi-rate, you know, multi benchmark in, in different jurisdictions is something that has existed for a while. For instance, in the U.S., we've always had effective Fed funds coexist with, uh, with LIBOR. And I think in the new regime, you're going to have effective Fed funds, SOFR, as well as perhaps other credit-based indices coexist. For instance, we've heard about the bond yield index as well as Ameribor. The question really becomes, you know, in my mind, one of bifurcation of liquidity. And if the markets are going to be amenable to multiple rates coexisting and what happens to liquidity under those circumstances. Historically speaking, there's always been one benchmark that has been the leading benchmark and liquidity has sort of migrated towards that one leading benchmark. So that's kind of how I see things going forward. So for being that leading benchmark and then perhaps smaller markets for 
other benchmarks based on need. Jack, do you see this as kind of a, as kind of Sabadra's laid it out, kind of breaking old habits and, and figuring out how to new, trade the new rates, what the new relationships are going to be, or is this more fundamental than that? I, I agree with Sabadra. I, I think the market is going to innovate and is going to adapt. And if the, the end goal of what derivatives like cross-currency swaps, just as an example, what they do, they, they provide an important solution to end users. So the market is going to adapt and innovate to figure out how to achieve that, that goal. There are multiple basis risks that we manage currently, that, that we've managed well before uh, LIBOR benchmark reform, and this is just another basis risk uh, that we're going to manage. I do think because there's multi-rates and the market structures and, and liquidity is still developing, uh, we have to pay a lot of attention to liquidity growth because, you know, we, we need to um, stay focused on that. But we also also need to educate ourselves about these these different rates. So with education and awareness, working together with our, our clients to make sure we're, um, you know, meeting their needs and their solutions, the market will, will innovate to reach those goals. Are there any other kind of basis trades that you're looking for other than kind of the cross-currency swap market, Jack? If I go back to early days of trading swap spreads for our portfolios, you're predominantly trading two yield curves. We're trading a, a treasury or a risk-free curve versus a LIBOR curve. And now just in the US, you have OIS, you have SOFR. So there's just more bases that inherently exist in the market. I think on, on the one hand, as I've said before, it's important to make sure you have the education and the awareness and the systems to handle that. On the flip side, I think it just delivers another, another solution. It's ways to capture alpha you know, for, for our clients, and certain curves provide certain needs for our clients. So I, I don't think this introduction of basis risk should be something we should be afraid of. We just need to prepare for it and then be proactive and just understand that there's more tools now in the toolbox. Now, another factor in liquidity formation has been the issue of de- developing a term structure. How important are forward-looking term rates and should people want them for risk-free rates? Uh, they've had them for LIBOR. Is this another one of those things that they just need to think about how they trade this differently and get over it? Or is this forward-looking issue uh, an important factor going from here on out? I think a a forward-looking term rate is going to be important for some products. I've had conversations with a variety of counterparties who are sort of waiting, I should say, for a forward-looking term rate. For instance, if you look at the loan market, there's uh, prepayment characteristics. Typically for products like that, backward-looking rate, overnight rate doesn't, doesn't work. Mortgages, for instance, you know, consumers uh, need to have some sort of a heads up when there's a change in the in the rates. Also, you know, broadly speaking, there are investor types, like even say regional banks, who want a rate that reflects uh, their cost of funding and has a certain credit component associated with it. So there's definitely pockets of need for a forward-looking term rate. The question is that does that involve the you know 75% of the investor base probably not it's a very small segment that needs perhaps a forward looking term rate so that should 
not stop the majority of the investors from transitioning to uh, SOFR, where I think SOFR would actually be a better rate for the broader markets as opposed to the smaller investor base that might that depends on a forward-looking term rate. Jack, what are your clients asking for? When we, we think about the evolution of you know, the, the conversation on term rates, it was originally a general want and now is more about pockets of need. The development of a term rate should not be a, a universal red light on moving forward with transition because it is not a need for all products. So I, I think it's important to spend the time thinking about product by product, how that impacts those end users, and to the extent that it's important to certain products, making progress on term rates, I think is an important sequence in you know, pushing things forward. But I also think we do need to have an understanding that for a lot of products, including just the rates markets, which have traded off of OIS conventions in the past, something like compounded SOFR in arrears does work. So it should not be something that, that we delay all forward progress until that's there, but it will be an important development step to have. I think this trading liquidity question, the factors around it is absolutely fascinating. But Jack, you brought up a, a good point that I'd like to explore and that's the operational questions. And you've mentioned it twice now. Let's not overlook those and maybe give our listeners a perspective as to how you're dealing with them and both from an asset manager and from a, uh, from a large bank. You guys are both you know, on the trading end of, the, uh, of this equation, but how do you think about managing the operational risk here within your own firms and what has to happen? And do we have enough time between now and the kind of the end of 2021 to be ready for this? I think it's an important question. Yes, Scott. And, and yes, I, I did bring it up a, a couple of times because of its importance. This is something that we began working on several years ago at the onset of, of these benchmark reform efforts. It's a matter of integrating new data into our systems, being able to take in these new alternative reference rates, build yield curves, build your systems flexibly. So to have a, a good amount of flexibility, because as something like term rates, which we just discussed, if that becomes published and, and a more of a standard, we want to be able to incorporate that new data into our model to build curves and handle the analysis of individual securities and portfolios. It's also an upgrade of the operational aspect of systems to handle payments, day counts. I used this phrase before. This is exactly the type of thing where you do need to sweat the details and also just Again, it's about education, the education of traders, making sure they're familiar with any type of new workflow and understanding that in the U.S., something like SOFR is inherently different from LIBOR and how that will play a role and, and change the nature of uh, some risks inside portfolios. So, Badr, how about you? Yeah, no, I, I completely agree with Jack. In, in some respects, it's sort of going back to the basics. I feel like I'm reliving the first two years of my career where I focused on day count and simple averaging versus compounded averaging. And internally, these issues are actually a lot bigger than people appreciate because a lot of systems changes need to happen. 
there's an internal cost of funding in, in large banks that needs to be shifted to a new paradigm. Being a, a foreign, large foreign bank, we have you know, operations in several countries and transfer pricing across different regions. All of this needs to shift to a different paradigm. And, and like we mentioned, we still have jurisdictions that have a secured, you know, sort of term unsecured rate versus a secured overnight rate. So the, the basis, cross-currency basis between the different regions, how to deal with that pricing, there's a lot of details that need to be addressed so that we don't have operational issues going forward. And that is not just with our clients and our end investors, but also internally, we need to reconcile our system so that it's all very cohesive. I'd really, really appreciate your insight on this. And, and you both are issue experts as well as traders. But I, I, this is a question I ask of all of our guests. How did you get into this? Did you grow up wanting to be a derivatives trader? Sabato, let's start with you. No, this is totally by chance. I'm an engineer by training and you know, finance was, was a happy happenstance. I happened to have a very quantitative background and I, I got hired into, uh, into Solomon Brothers back in the day, given sort of more my quantitative background than my finance background. Finance is something that I picked up along the way. Excellent. Jack, I have two questions for you. First, was this your dream to become an asset manager and a, and a rates trader? And second, has it been your secret dream to always be on the ISDA board? I interviewed with BlackRock back when I was still in undergrad. It's my, my first job. I joined BlackRock in July 2000 as a summer analyst. And I was super excited to just join this, at the time, a 12-year-old firm that had tremendous people. And they were, they were super excited about the role they were playing in this growing asset management field. So... I had gotten into derivatives, I, I guess, just kind of by um, accident. I was on the, on the trading floor and I was offered this, this opportunity to be the junior trader um, of our swaps book and sort of have never, have never left. Uh, with respect to the ISDA board, I would say it's quite an honor to be part of it. So probably while I, I wouldn't say it was the, uh, the dream when I started undergrad, I would say it's uh, it's quite an honor to continue to serve on the board, I, and I very much believe in ISDA's mission, and I'm, I'm proud to be a part of it. So if you, you weren't a derivatives trader, what would you be? My closet hobby is that I play the piano, and if I wasn't doing this, I would love to just be a uh, like a studio piano player. I play with a band out on Long Island. And, you know, unfortunately, through the pandemic, we're, we're playing less in, in front of live audiences, but that's uh, something I truly enjoy and can't wait to do it again. Well, this is a fun fact for everybody listening, but we have um, on the previous episode, Tom Whip was on and he is also part of a band and, and that was his dream as well. So it's, uh, it's quite remarkable that we have two musical talented people on the ISDA board. We don't break out in song ever, but um, it's, it's nice to have that as a fallback. So, Badr, what about you? If you weren't doing this, what would you be doing? If I didn't have the luxury of having to work for a living, I'd probably be involved in some sort of a charitable endeavor of some sort. And not to sound too altruistic, but it feels like there's, a, a, you know, especially this stage in my career, it feels like there's a lot more I can do to uh, better the world than be focused just in finance. But I do have a passion for finance and the financial industry. So, you know, I like the excitement of the, of the work. So it's, it's either of those work. 
Well, I think you can check both boxes if you support and help the effective and efficient transition to risk-free rates. I'm sure the regulators and, and the rest of the market would be grateful for your assistance there. Sounds good. So that's about all the time we have. Jack Zabadra, thank you very much for uh, joining us and sharing your insights around trading liquidity and, and markets. It's been very fascinating. We could go on and on. So thank you for joining us today. Thanks, Scott. Thank you. So Scott, we had the regulator view in episode one. Then we were able to get a perspective on the industry transition milestones in episode two. And with this episode, it's been really interesting to get the trading view. I I guess the the thing that stood out for me was there'd been a lot of talk about how important the the move to SOFA discounting and price alignment interest by the CCPs would be, and and obviously the the launch of the, the the fallback supplement and protocol. But it seemed that Jack was saying that this would be a progression, that there wouldn't be a kind of magic wand where liquidity would suddenly emerge from nowhere. Um, it would be a steady state of progression all the way up through the end of 2021. Yeah, I, I completely agree. It's it's not going to be one big thing or one event. It is an evolution or, or progress, as, as he put it. So yeah, I, I, think, I think he's spot on. So what did you take away from that conversation? What did you sort of see as being the most important elements? Certainly, the cash issuance seemed to be something that both Jack and Sabadra thought would be an important element in all of this. Well, that's a question I've been wrestling with, I guess, probably for the for about a year now. Is it the issuance or is it kind of some other factor that brings liquidity to it? Liquidity isn't just going to magically show up one day. So I, I stopped worrying about, is it the chicken or the egg? And I'm saying it's kind of both or all these things. It's going to be a, a number of factors that slowly develop over time with a deadline in mind. That's 2021. And eventually, you know, I think everybody's going to make the transition. Well, we've just about come to the end of our series on benchmarks, although, Scott, I'm sure this would be something that we're going to come back and explore on several occasions between now and the end of 2021. Yeah, this is definitely going to be a topic that we uh, keep exploring. In the meantime, there are plenty of other issues that we are going to get our teeth into. Brexit would be one. The impact of the US election is another. So lots for us to talk about in the episodes ahead. Scott, I will speak to you next time. Very good. Thanks, Nick. That's it for this episode. Thanks for listening to The Swap. Keep in touch with ISDA via our website, www.isda.org, and our social media channels. See you next time. 